Father in heaven, we've come to another time in the week where we sit together as a church family in worship of you. Father, you have blessed us more than we deserve. And it's because of your multitude blessings that we linger a little bit longer to receive yet another blessing from your word. So, Father, we ask that you will take the message, that you would take your word and apply it right in our hearts where it needs to be, that we will leave here different because of our encounter with you. Thank you, Father. Speak to us now, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible describes the Christian experience in many different ways. Sometimes the Bible describes it in the illustration of farming. Sometimes it uses the athletic pursuits as a way of illustrating the Christian walk, building, shepherding. The illustrations are endless in the Bible that are used to describe the Christian experience. But these analogies, as good as they are, uh, they are serving a purpose to help us understand different facets and different elements of our Christian walk. But there is one way that the Bible describes our Christian walk, our Christian experience, that you will find throughout Scripture, and that is using the illustration or the metaphor of war. Our sermon entitled this morning is War Time. War has ravaged this planet since the beginning of time. We know that Satan made this thing come to pass many years or many, much before uh, you know, sin even entered into the world. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7 that there was war in heaven. And of course, there is where it all began. And we can trace this history throughout Scripture from the beginning In the book of Genesis, all the way through to Revelation, there is this common theme or thread of constant warfare that is taking place. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 7, the Bible says, and it was given unto him to make war with the saints during the time of religious persecution in the dark ages. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, the Bible says, and the dragon was wroth with the woman. That is Satan. He was angry with God's people and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. War is a theme that we find throughout Scripture. But the good news this morning is that the Bible tells us what the result of this war is. And perhaps my favorite passage in the book of Revelation is Revelation 17 and verse 14 where the Bible says, And these shall make war with the Lamb and the Lamb shall overcome. Would you say amen? So yes, there is this theme of this constant theme of war throughout Scripture. You will find that the Bible does not describe a wartime part of life and a non-wartime part of life. The Bible simply describes that we are in a war. In his book, Prevailing Prayer, Taylor Bunch says this, Christians are not on a playground enjoying a picnic. We are on a battlefield, engaged in a fight to the finish. It is an all-out war, 
We occupy a fortress, not a pleasure house. The sooner we grasp this understanding that we are living in a constant war, the better soldiers, I believe, we will become. As long as we continue going around as though there is no war taking place, as though we live in a time of peace, we will find that we will be defeated one time after another. Can you imagine what it would be like to have a civilian dropped in the middle of a chaotic battle? How well would he fare? Not very well. We are living in a war. We are not civilians, but we are soldiers. Amen? This war that we are fighting is a war of a surrendering of our souls to God. That is a war that we must constantly fight. Inspiration tells us this, the Christian life is a battle and a march. What is a Christian life? It's a battle and a march. The warfare is unceasing. With earnest, determined efforts, we must constantly oppose the forces of the enemy. We must what? Constantly. It's a daily thing. We do not get a break from this until we get to the kingdom of heaven. Sure, we live in a country where we are free to worship God according to the dictates of our conscience, and we are grateful for that. But sometimes I wonder if that serves to lull us into a state of complacency in this war that we are fighting because we are no longer persecuted for our beliefs as it was in times past. In fact, as you look at the Bible, you will find, particularly in the writings of Paul, writing to the young man Timothy, he encourages him to view his whole life and his whole ministry in the context of war. Listen to this, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. The Bible says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on, uh, on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. And then in his second letter to Timothy, he says this, chapter 2 and verse 4, No man that warreth entangleth himself in the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. I like the way the ESV translates this version. It says, or this verse, it says, No soldier entangles himself in civilian pursuits. And then Paul, writing to Timothy as a soldier who is in warfare, he says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold upon eternal things whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. And then, of course, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 4 verse 7, I have fought the good fight of faith. Do you see it? throughout the writings of Paul, especially writing to Timothy, that we are engaged in a war, that we are to view our life, our ministry, our existence here on this earth as an all-out battle between us and the forces of evil. But perhaps the greatest tragedy, in my humble opinion, 
is that there are many who have accepted Christ as their personal Savior who are defeated in this battle time and time again. And in my understanding of Scripture, this ought not to be. God wants us to experience victory, uninterrupted victory, one after the other. But because of the constant stress and strain of the uh, battle that we are raging, people lose their hold and their sight upon God, and they end up doing things that they regret. Perhaps there are many answers to be found in Scripture as to how we can be successful in a war such as what the Bible describes. But I would like to submit to you one thing, and it's this. If you knew that tomorrow that there was going to be World War III, and that the epicenter of that war was going to be Muskegon, Michigan, how would that change your life today? Would it be business as usual? Would you go home this afternoon and put your feet up and take a nap? If you knew that World War III was going to be fought and that Muskegon, Michigan was going to be at the epicenter of that war, how would that change your life today? It would change it drastically, wouldn't it? Your whole life would shift in just a moment, the moment you found that out, because you would want to be prepared when that battle began to be fought tomorrow, would you not? Now, the reality of it is, you know where I'm going with this. The reality of it is, World War III has already started. That World War III started this morning when you woke up and breathed, you know, that first breath as you woke up this morning, and you had to make decisions whether or not you were going to commit your life to the Lord and start your day off with devotions and prayer, whether or not you were going to come to church. All of these decisions, that war started at that very moment. And every moment when we wake up, we have to realize that we are at the epicenter of this cosmic battle that is taking place that the Bible describes to us. And the decisions that we make today will prepare us to face that war. And herein lies the problem why there is defeat in this battle. It comes from a lack of preparation. We know that we're going to be in a battle. We will prepare so that when that battle comes, we might be successful. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. This is perhaps the most familiar passage in all of Scripture on the concept of war. I want to take a look at it through a new lens today and also in our time together next week. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is summarizing his epistle to the church of Ephesus. He has given them a lot of advice up to this point, and now he's making his concluding remarks, his P.S., if you will, to his letter. And he says this in verse 10, begins, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, 
against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Paul, in chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians, he starts off by writing to children and parents about obedience. He talks a little bit about uh, uh, servants and masters and how they are to treat one another. But then he makes this concluding remark, finally, my brethren. And of course, we understand that as Paul is writing here in in the book of Ephesus, or the book of Ephesians, it's not him that is speaking, but it is God that is speaking through him. So God is talking to his children here. And what is the first thing that God tells his children to do there in verse 10? He says, finally, my brethren, what does it say? Be what? Be strong in the Lord. The first thing that we are told to do is that we need to be strong in the Lord. Listen to me, brothers and sisters, as we engage in this battle, the strength does not come from within, but the strength comes from above. And I'm thankful for that little verse because oftentimes when we think about the armor of God, we start, we go straight to the different elements of the armor. But before we even get to the armor, Paul tells us to be strong in the Lord. It's not in our own strength that we meet this battle, but it's in the power and strength of the Lord. Now, we also understand from Scripture that whenever God gives us a command, we instantly translate that in our mind into a promise. Because when God commands us to do something, he also enables us to do that very thing. And so when God says to be strong in the Lord, in that command is a promise that I can tap in to the power and strength of God. And of course, we have that great promise in the book of Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, that I can do all things through Christ who, what? Strengthens us. So when we have the power and the strength of God, when we obtain that strength and that power that comes from above, Scripture tells us that we are able to do all things, including being victorious in this battle. Somebody ought to say amen to that. Now, unfortunately, when we are faced with a battle such as this, the Christian tendency is to become discouraged. I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters. We all are susceptible to this. So I'm not preaching down at you. We are all susceptible to discouragement. But discouragement is not the power and strength of Jehovah. Did you all hear me? discouragement is not the power and strength of Jehovah. And if it's victory that we want in this battle, then discouragement needs to be put to the side and the power of God needs to be claimed as ours. Now, it's interesting to me that we can be clothed in all of the modern forms of war. We can have the most recent development of a bulletproof vest, can have a fancy war helmet on. We can have all of the modern um, war uh, tools, guns, whatever it may be. We can have all of that stuff. But if we do not have a powerful and courageous heart, it doesn't matter on what we have on the outside. Are you all with me? You can have all of the fancy outfit of war, 
But if you do not have a heart that is powerful and courageous, when you are brought into that war, you will flee as a coward. Especially a war such as the one that we need to fight facing the enemy that the Bible has described to us in Scripture. So I find it interesting that before Paul even talks about armor, he talks about having a courageous, powerful heart where the power comes from God and not from within. Listen to me carefully, brothers and sisters. Before you can put on the armor of God, you have to have the power of God in your life. We have too many people that are clanging around in spiritual armor, looking like they are soldiers, but they do not have the power of God inside of their hearts. And so when they're brought into the moment of conflict, instead of being strong and courageous, they crumble and become discouraged. So they look good. Everybody thinks they're okay. They think that there's a good soldier. You know, they got all of their armor on, but their hearts fail them because they don't have the power of God. So before Paul even brings in the concept of armor, he first says, listen, the power has to come from above, not from within. So I want you to meditate on that. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us this. He says that his uh, strength, God says that his strength is made perfect in our weakness, right? Paul says that when I am weak, then I am It's the direct opposite of what we think of when it comes to strength, spiritually speaking. But God tells us, what he's simply telling us in that passage of Scripture is that a weak person who has submitted to the power and authority of God, they have put their own self to the side, their own strength to their side, their own uh, self, uh, you know, things that they've been able to achieve in their own power and strength, they put all that to the side and they recognize their weakness, then God can fill them with strength from above. Really what it boils down to is a surrender of our soul to God. When we do that, then God can fill us with strength. And here's a passage for you to jot down in your notes, Psalms 138, verse 3. Wonderful promise that I found in my study this past week. The Bible tells us, in the day when I cried Thou answerest me and strengthened me with strength in my soul. Does God want to give you strength, yes or no? Sure he does. And we can pray, the Bible tells us, David prayed here. He prayed and asked God to give him strength. And when God, when he prayed that prayer, God strengthened him to meet the forces of darkness. First, Paul tells us that we need to have a strong and courageous heart, not one that we have developed, but one that God has given to us. That is 101 of what it means to be a soldier. We have not even talked about putting on armor at this point. A powerful, strong, and courageous heart that comes from above. Then Paul goes on, and he gives us another command. First, he says, Uh, to, uh, he says, put on, sorry, verse 10, he says, uh, be strong in the Lord. And then the second command that he gives in verse 11 is to put on the whole armor of God. Now, I find it interesting, neither one of these commands are suggestions, right? God is not suggesting that we do this. He's giving us a direct command. And as, as, you know, in this context of war and soldiers and battles and all that kind of stuff, context of this 
The general is giving us a command and we do not argue with the general's command. He says, go in my strength and put my armor on. And so we say, okay, it's not a suggestion. It's something that God has commanded us to do. Review and Herald, May 25 of 1905 says this, if we have on the heavenly armor, if we have on what? We shall find that the results of, sorry, that the assaults of the enemy will not have power over us. What will happen when we have the armor of God on? Satan will not be successful. He will not triumph over us. God's armor has been proven to be successful in keeping us safe. Now, let me ask you a question. What kind of people wear armor? Soldiers, right? You see civilians with armor on? So by the fact of Paul saying, put on the armor of God, he is assuming in that command that you are a what? A soldier. It's just implied in the passage. If you're putting on armor, then you are a soldier. And soldiers go through special training to be able to be successful in battle. Listen to me carefully. Civilians have no right to be in the middle of war. When a civilian gets into the middle of war, there are casualties that happen. God wants us to be prepared, and so he calls us as soldiers to go forth to the battle, properly clad to meet the enemy with success. Now, I want you to also notice something else. The Bible says, put on the armor of God. Whose armor is it? Whose is it? It's God's armor. It's not my armor. Forgive me for stating the obvious here. But it's not my armor. It's not your armor. It's not the church's armor. It's not a doctrinal thing. It's God's armor. He bestows it. He owns it. He prepares it, and he gives it to you. It's God's armor. And just like all of my righteousness is what? Filthy rags. So any armor that I make will be poor when it comes to the time of battle. And listen, brothers and sisters, we all do this. We all devise our little ways of trying to be successful when the hour of temptation comes. We all come up with our little, you know, our little armor that we put on, and it's, unfortunately, it's made out of cardboard. But for some reason, we cling to it. God says, listen, I want to give you armor that's going to protect you. We say, ah, thanks, but no thanks. I'll keep my cardboard. And so we come up with our own armor, and and when we get into the fray of the battle, we find that our armor is inadequate. It's okay to have cardboard on if there's sticks that are being thrown. But that's not the kind of battle we're waging here. And when we put on our own armor, what we find is that we actually become a casualty instead of being able to stand victorious. So God tells us, put on my armor. Put the cardboard to the side, burn it, get rid of it. Put my armor on because my armor is sturdier and it is proven to be successful when the hour of battle comes. So two things Paul tells us to do before we even engage in battle. 
to go in the strength of the Lord, to ask God to give us a strong, courageous heart, and to then put on God's armor instead of our own. Now, why is all of this necessary? Notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 12. Paul goes on, he says this, for we wrestle not against what? We wrestle not against flesh and blood. What is Paul saying there? He's saying that the battle that we are fighting is not human. Right? Listen to me carefully. What Paul is telling us is that the battle we are fighting is not against ordinary people. The people in your home are not the battle. The people you work with are not the battle. The people you go to church with are not the battle. The people that are on the board, they're not the battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's not a human battle that we are fighting. We are fighting a spiritual war. And behind those little annoyances that we have, there is a great enemy who is pulling strings trying to get you mad. Listen to me carefully, brothers and sisters. The battle to be fought is a battle of self. And when you find yourself getting angry because of the way somebody is treating you, it's not the person, it's the devil causing you to get angry. That's the battle. It's the battle with self. When you feel annoyed or offended, it's not the person that is the battle, but it's Satan who is tempting you to get like that. That's the battle. You see, sometimes we think, if this person was not in my life, then my life would be much easier. No, the devil would find somebody else to use. And even if you removed all of those people out of your life, then you are your own worst enemy. Because then you would think, oh, I've made it. I'm ready for translation. Come on, Enoch, let's walk up to heaven. You see, God allows these people to be brought in our lives because it reveals character traits in our life that are not like Jesus. The battle is with self. It's not with people. That's what Paul is saying here when he says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But then he goes on and he says this. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. There's no way that you will be successful in fighting this battle with this enemy if you go with cardboard on. So now Paul is trying to paint the picture. He's trying to create the need, if you will. So he says, put on the armor of God. By the way, let me tell you why you need the armor of God. Because you're not going to be wrestling with people who are going to throw sticks and stones that cardboard is okay for, but you're going to be wrestling with this demonic power that is far more powerful than you could ever be. That's why you need God's armor. So he's creating the need here. The foe we fight does not sleep and he does not weary. He is constant in his attacks. The Bible tells us he's a subtle enemy. He's a powerful enemy. And he is a spiritual enemy. He's creating the need for the armor of God. And then in verse 13, Paul says this, wherefore, or therefore, some translations say. So because of this enemy that he has described in verse 12, he says, therefore, take unto you the what? The whole armor of God that you may be able to 
withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So because this is the enemy, you need this. I find it interesting that Paul twice says put on the what? How much? Not just some of it, right? He's saying, listen, don't go to battle without your helmet on. Don't forget to take your breastplate and your shield and your sword. Don't go there, you know, with just your sword in your hand, but go there with your, with what? The whole arm, from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. If you're going to be successful in fighting this battle, don't be a half-hearted Christian. Don't be a lopsided Christian that, you know, excels in one area but is deficient in other areas. But have this rounded Christianity experience where you take the whole armor of God so that you can be successful when you meet the enemy. Now, I like the way the New Living Translation translates this verse. I read this this morning. It says this. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you shall be standing firm. Did you catch that? That's powerful. After the battle, when? You shall be able to? Because you have what? How much of it? So when we have all of the armor of God, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but if we have all the armor of God on, when the battle is done, what will you be doing? Standing. Somebody ought to say amen to that. So God, Paul is making this very clear for us. If you want to be successful, we are in a wartime context. The Bible does not describe a, uh, you know, a a life of war and a non-life of war. It is war. The only time that peace is going to come is when we leave this earth of turmoil and go to heaven, the place of peace, right? So between now and then, we just have to keep this constant vigilance of the battle that is raging all around us. Now, I want to read the rest of this passage just very quickly here. We'll get into this more in our study together next week. But Paul goes on in verse 14, Roman, uh, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14, He says, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and above all taking the shield of faith uh, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Six things that Paul tells us to take. Truth. Righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. Now, look at that list. When you look at that list of six things, Paul takes the things that we typically view as a blessing. Is salvation a blessing? Is faith a blessing? Is the word of God a blessing? He takes these things that we look at as a blessing, and he puts them in a wartime context. We are not blessed with these things just so we can be all happy because we are blessed. We are blessed with these things because it's the very armor that we need to wear in the battle. Amen? So Paul takes these things that we are used to thinking of as blessings and he inserts them into a wartime context. 
God's truth, his righteousness, his peace, his faith, salvation, the word of God, they've all been conscripted for use in battle. And this is the way that we overcome in the day of battle. So, if we know the truth, according to Paul, we need to wear it as a belt. If we have righteousness, we need to wear it as a breastplate. If we cherish the gospel of peace, we need to put it on like shoes that a soldier wears. If we have the faith, if we rest in the faith in the promises of God, then we need to fasten them to our arm as a shield. If we enjoy salvation, we need to secure it on our head as a helmet. If we love the word of God, we must use it as a as a sword. Now, I think we all believe this. I think most of us could sit down and close our Bibles. And if we did that, we could probably all come up with the six different elements of the armor of God, just from the top of our heads. Because we're familiar with what it looks like. But we're not as familiar with what it feels like to have it on. Is there a difference? There's a di- I, can, I can identify a machine gun. I can identify a bulletproof vest. I can identify a helmet. I can identify all of these things that soldiers wear. I can identify most of them. But I have no idea what it's like to use and have those things on. And there's all the difference in the world. You can identify it, but you may not be successful in using it in the battle because you have not been trained with it. And so God is, see, we we have in, in, in our Christian lives, we oftentimes have this theoretical experience where we know what righteousness is. We know what the truth is. We know what the word of God is. We know about peace. We know these different things and we can go to our proof texts and we can prove them from the word of God. But do we know what it's like to use it in battle? That's the difference. It's one thing to be able to identify it and prove it. It's another thing to actually use it when the battle comes. To put that shield up and to block the fiery darts of the enemy, to have that blessed breastplate of righteousness covering you when the enemy attacks you. It's another thing to use it when the battle comes. And that's what Paul is telling us to do. He doesn't say to just identify it. He doesn't say to look at it. He doesn't say to just tell other people about it. He says to what? Put it on. Put on the armor of God. I think that our casual approach to life reveals that for many of us, we think we're living in times of peace. The way you view life, whether it's in a wartime context or a time of peace, will affect you greatly in the outcome. Listen to me carefully. War changes everything, right? Now, so there are many of you here who had dads and grandparents that fought in wars, World War I, World War II. You've sat and listened to many of their stories. The history has been, <clears throat> I mean, there are reams and reams and reams of books that are written about the history of World War II. Did that change America, yes or no? 
<clears throat> the fact that we were in a war, it affected the soldiers on the front lines, and it affected the children at home who were being subject to the rations. It affected everybody because they were in a war. Our approach to life will reveal whether or not we think as Christians that we are living in a time of peace or we are living in a time of war because war changes our perspective. During the time of war, newspapers carry the headlines about what's going on with the troops on the front lines. During the time of war, family talk about their loved ones who are fighting on the front lines. During the time of war, families write and they pray for the safety. They write too and they pray for the safety of those who are fighting. During the time of war, everyone is on a high alert. We are all armed. We are all vigilant and we all spend our money differently. Because it's war. And the objective of war is to get to the time of peace. Right? So if I as a Christian view my world that I am living in a time of war, is that going to affect how I live my life? Absolutely. Is it going to affect my wallet? Is it going to affect how I use my time? It's going to affect everything. But if I view my life as a time of peace, is that going to change my use of money? Sure. Because during a time of war, your finances and your energy are used to get to the time of peace. During a time of peace, your finances and your energy is used to find comfort. See, it changes your whole perspective. Are we living in a time of war or are we living in a time of peace? Very few people think that we are living in a time of war, a war that is greater than World War II. The enemy that we have to fight is greater than Adolf Hitler and any of the other tyrants that tried to rule this world. The war that we are fighting is not in some far-off distant land in the Middle East over crude oil or anything else that we might see being piped down to us through the media. The war that we are fighting today is happening right here in the United States of America. It's happening in every city, every town, every state, every county, every home, and every family. The casualties in this war... Don't just lose an eye or an arm or a leg or even their physical life. But the casualties in this war have eternal consequences. Do you view life as war or do you view it as peace? In 1940, the U.S. government com commissioned a boat to be built, $80 million troop carrier, the sole purpose was for this machine of war to move soldiers quickly from one part of the world to another part. It was designed to carry 15,000 troops during the time of war, but unfortunately, the ship, the SS United States, was not finished until 1952, which happened to be seven years after World War II. It could travel 10,000 miles without stopping for fuel or supplies. It could outrun any other ship 
at that time. It could travel nonstop to any place in the world in less than 10 days. It was the fastest, most reliable ship in the world. The only thing was, is that the SS United States never saw combat. It was put on standby during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but it was never used. It actually ended up becoming a luxury liner. And instead of carrying 15,000 troops to battle, it just carried about 2,000 people, heads of state, presidents, celebrities. In fact, from what I understand, Bill Clinton traveled on it at one point. There were 695 staterooms in the SS United States, four dining saloons, four bars, two theaters, five acres of open deck, a heated swimming pool, and the world's first fully air-conditioned cabin. Ship that had been designed for war had become a means of indulgence for the wealthy. You know, things look a lot different on a luxury liner than they do on a ship of war, don't they? The faces of the people look different. The conversations that are being had are different. The speed at which the boat travels is different. And I believe that we can learn a lot from the history of the SS United States. It is, now, it is now moored to a dock in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and it is there rotting. You know, <clears throat> the church is a lot like the SS United States. That ship was built for war, and God's church is also built for war. And I wonder if sometimes we view God's church more as a luxury liner than as we do a ship of war in battle. And I want to tell you something this morning, brothers and sisters, as the way we view life. If you view life as a time of peace, then you will expect from the church comfort and entertainment. If you view life as war, you will view the church as a means of equipping you for that war. It changes everything. And I think the problem that we are facing here in North America, and we do not have the corner market on this in the Seventh-day Adventist church, but it's definitely affecting us, is that Christians in general, we think we are living in a time of peace. And so the church has to become a place where we get our spiritual fix instead of our marching orders. And when we're not properly entertained, or when we don't get our selfish needs fulfilled, or if we have a little discrepancy with somebody at church, 
we feel that we have not gotten out of the church what we rightfully deserve. I pay my tithe. I pay my offering. I expect to get this. It all affects the way we view life. I think it's time for us as God's children for us to change the way we view the life that we are living. Yes, we live in a peaceful country, but we are still at war. And the church is not to entertain you. The church is to equip you. And it's because we think that the church is to entertain us that we don't come to prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. We don't think of it as a time when we are to be equipped. It's because we think the church is there to entertain us that we don't come to Sabbath school on Sabbath morning because we think of it more as an entertainment rather than an equipping. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, if you're a soldier that's going to war, you will not miss out on a time to be equipped because you know your life depends on that. And so it's the way we view our life that will ultimately affect how we interact with the church, how we interact with each other, and whether or not we will be successful in the end. It is time for us to see that we are living in a wartime context, not in a time of peace. Now, I'm going to conclude on this. I don't oftentimes read a long quote, but this is worth reading. Signs of the Times, August 30th, 1905, says this. The idea that Christ's followers can be excused from the conflict meeting no trials, and at all times enjoying the comfort and even the luxuries of life is a fatal mistake. What is a fatal mistake? Thinking that we shouldn't have to meet any trials or difficulties, thinking that we deserve to live in a luxurious life. It's a fatal mistake for a Christian. The Christian life is a battle in a march, calling for aggressive warfare, perseverance, and endurance. It is not a mimic battle in which we are engaged. This is no make-believe conflict. We have most, a most powerful adversary to meet, those who serve under the blood-stained banner of Prince Emmanuel will be given a difficult work which will tax every power of being. They will have painful trials to endure for Christ's sake They will have conflicts which will rend their souls. But, but if they are faithful soldiers, they will say, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I know the temptation is to think that was a very depressing sermon. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you are encouraged to know two things. Number one, that God is going to help you in this battle. And number two, the battle is going to come to an end. The battle is going to come to an end. And God's soldiers who are fighting in this battle, they have a laser beam focus on the prize that is at the end. They don't strive for peace here on this earth. They strive for peace in the kingdom of heaven. They don't strive for temporal gain, 
but they strive for eternal prosperity. They don't strive to be comfortable here, but they strive to take as many people with them to the kingdom of heaven as possible. It's a difference in perspective. I pray that you are encouraged by the fact of knowing that if we stand with Prince Emmanuel, that as we walk in the footsteps of Jesus, that we will be successful in this battle and that one day we will look into the face of our Savior and hear that voice, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It's time for us to be soldiers of Christ, amen? Not just sing about it, not just talk about it, but actually do it. So tomorrow morning, I want to encourage you as you get up in the morning, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, in addition to whatever you do in your devotional time, and say, Lord, please give me your power, and please put your armor on me today. Amen? Let's pray for that. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that you have seen fit to invest in us as your children. That you don't just drop us in the fray of the battle with no means of protection and of warding off the enemy. But Lord, you put us into the battle equipped and set up to be able to stand when the battle is over. How encouraging that is. And Father, as we face the battle with self this next week, please put your armor on us and help us to fight in the power and strength of God and not in our own cardboard armor. Father, may we go from one victory to another in our walk with you. And may you send your Holy Spirit to continue to show us the path of eternal life. Lord, we long for that day when the conflict will be over. What a restful time it will be in the peaceful atmosphere of the kingdom of heaven. We long for that, Lord. But until then, we ask that you will keep us faithful. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.